In today's fast-paced world, your business deserves banking solutions that are as dynamic and cost-effective as you are. Solutions like free business checking from LGE Community Credit Union, free online and mobile banking, no minimum balance required, plus no maintenance fees and dividends on your balance. At LGE, we're a smarter way to bank. See what's possible for your business at lgeccu.org. No monthly maintenance fees. Other service fees such as NSF, overdraft, wire, and stop payment fees still apply. Not all businesses will qualify. Membership eligibility and base savings account that keeps a $5 minimum balance required. It's time to face the music. It's your day in court with a people's lawyer, Bruce Hagan, and attorney Ray Judice. Welcome to your day in court with Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice. This is a special edition of the show. We're glad that you're here and listening. We're going to be talking to Gilbert King. He hosted and wrote about Bone Valley. It's a podcast about a man that was, well, essentially wrongfully uh, convicted of a murder down in Florida, in Lakeland, Florida. And though there's someone else who has admitted that they committed this crime, justice still hasn't been done in this case. It is a, uh, it's an interesting, interesting podcast that we encourage you to go check out after you listen to this show. Again, it's called Bone Valley. Bruce Hagen joins me here in the studio. Bruce, you turned me on to this, and I can't uh, tell you how much I appreciate it. It's such a great listen. Yeah, and I'm so excited to have Gilbert here with us today. Um, as we record this, Ray Judice uh, is... Uh, on call, waiting for a judge, uh, and uh, judges take priority even over Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, journalists, authors uh, like Gilbert King. Um, so we have no choice but to uh, just plow forward without him. But uh, yeah, Gil- Gilbert uh, will tell you a little bit about his background. But uh, he was an award-winning author before he ever came onto um, this story that became the basis of the. Um, Bone Valley podcast, which, by the way, also just recently um, was voted by Vulture as the number one true podcast of 2022. So I can't encourage our listeners enough to take the time to listen to this. You will be drawn in from the very first episode like I was. Uh, it's, It's just an amazing story. And you would think that this is a work of fiction because it seems so amazing that this could happen uh, here in our country with you know what we frequently refer to as having the greatest justice system in the world, that there could be such an incredible injustice like this one. So without much further ado, um, we'd just like to introduce Gilbert King. Gilbert, thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Great to be here with you guys. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, it, it is a treat to have you. And um, we've talked before about... Um, <laughs> Some of the good things that lawyers can do, but even beyond that, some of the amazing work that uh, can take place and can really only take place when you've got a talented journalist with the ability and the motivation to just dig into a story to help reveal the truth or, or uncover unfairness and injustice in a way that really no lawyer is capable of doing on their own. And, and that is definitely what you've done with the story of Bone Valley. So if you, if possible, can you just give sort of a brief introduction as, as to, you know, for initially your background at why this was um, a topic that was brought to your attention and then ultimately what it was about Leo's story that got you interested? I mean, I'm happy to talk about it because it's it's interesting. I, I think as I was listening to you guys talk, I was like, really? I've been doing this for 20-something years, <clears throat> um, really focusing on these kind of stories of injustices. Um, the difference is, is like I, I mostly write narrative nonfiction. And so I'm talking about book-length stories of like these narratives of going back to the 1940s, identifying a crime or a story, and just researching the hell out of it for years until I feel like I have it 
Right. And sometimes that involves correcting the official narrative, um, especially when you're dealing with wrongfully accused. So, you know, I started out doing a book in Louisiana called The, the uh, Execution of Willie Francis. And then that pivoted. I found an idea when I was working on that, which ultimately became Devil in the Grove, which is the story of Central Florida, 1949. Uh, they had this sheriff named Willis McCall, the most powerful sheriff in town. He was killing people and basically trying to railroad these four black defendants um, for a crime that they did not commit, which was sexually assaulting a white woman, which is, you know, almost a death sentence in the South back then. And so I investigated that. I found that really interesting because Thurgood Marshall was involved, a young Thurgood Marshall. Uh, this is before he became a justice on the Supreme Court. Um, he was really down there in the South, like, trying to solve these cases and trying to, you know, represent men who were wrongly accused of crimes. And it just became a very violent story in Central Florida. And, um, you know, as I was working on that, I got another idea from one of McCall's deputies who said, yeah, you got your story right, but why don't you write about this case? I was involved and we framed this kid. He basically confessed to me. Um, and so there's another five years of my life, right? I went down that rabbit hole. That was a really interesting case that became my next book, which was Beneath the Ruthless Sun. Um, and so with that background, I would often get invited to like judicial conferences, legal conferences. And one day back in 2018, I was doing a book talk for the Florida Judicial Circuit for all their judges. And um, after I finished, I was signing books and this judge came up to me basically and handed me this business card. Um, and you know, I flipped it over and I remember reading it. It said Leo Schofield had his DOC number and said, not just wrongfully convicted, He's an innocent man. And I remember looking at this going, a judge just gave me this tip? Like, that's <laughs> shocking to me, right? Yeah. And so I went out to dinner that night with some public defenders, and I showed them the card, and they just were as perplexed as I was. You know, they're saying the same thing, like, a judge handed you this card? Like, you're not supposed to do that. Was anybody, it, was anybody there familiar with this particular judge? Yeah, well, that no, they had no idea who the judge was. That was really interesting. But as the card, like, sort of made, a, made its way around the table, there was one public defender from Polk County there. And he looked at it and he said, I know this case, you should call him. And that kind of told me that there was something there to this case. And so I think I got back to New York a couple of days later and, and, and finally ended up talking to him. And it was, you know, I talk about this in the podcast because, you know, as a, as an author, like I had a book deal that I was working on and, you know, he's trying to get me to look at this case. And I said, well, this might be a couple of years before I can get to it. I find it interesting, but, you know, I could just feel his heartbreak, like a couple of years. This, there's a man, an innocent man in prison, like, and he kind of made me promise. He said, just do me a favor, read the trial transcript. And I think there was kind of a way to, for me to get him off the phone and just sort of agree <laughs> to that and for him to sort of make a last pitch. And but so just to, to interrupt briefly, I mean, for the yeah. listeners who might not be familiar, um, even just agreeing to read a trial transcript as, as a way to get somebody off the phone, I mean, you're, you're making it's quite a an undertaking. Yeah, it, it's an enormous document typically. And, and certainly if a trial takes a matter of days or a week, you know, you're, there's every single word that is spoken is in that trial transcript. So you're talking about a, a big volume. It's not like saying, you know, hey, re read this Reader's Digest version of uh, of some story. Oh, hundreds of pages. Yeah, it's it's a lot to yeah. just even say, yes, I'll read I'll read that. It's it's kind of like, yeah, of course, I'll read your script, <laughs> you know, if you're trying to make <laughs> well, a movie. This is how naive I am, because I'm used to dealing with, like, the transcripts from, like, 60 years ago, and they're, you know, they're not nearly as long and drawn out. You know, these are, like, one-day trials, convicted 
sentenced to the electric chair, and two months later they're dead. You know, um, so in, in the 1980s, these tran this transcript was like well over 2,000 pages. I didn't really know what I was getting into, um, but I also felt like a real like you know. I did promise him I would read it. And so I started reading and honestly, it was fascinating. I got hooked in it right away. And, you know, I, I'm definitely a slower reader when it comes to transcripts because I'm not a lawyer. And so I have to sort of take my time. I have a lot of questions. I'm doing a little Googling as I go, but it became pretty clear to me early on, like even through the state's case that like some of the witnesses were contradicting each other and the, 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 prosecutor was just blowing through that when he came to his closing argument you know he would he would tie it all up as if these witnesses all agreed on something and i was like they did not agree your star witness completely disagreed with her sister-in-law about the night this happened uh and so i was like reading this going this doesn't make any sense and it was being treated as fact when it was not fact and i got back to that judge and i said i got a lot of questions about this and we went through the whole thing together um, and that's when I realized, boy, there's something interesting about this case. And so that's when I started like filing some record requests and sort of put my book project on hold. <laughs> we are talking to Gilbert King uh, about the uh, Bone Valley podcast, and there and there's so many fascinating angles and, and so many details to this. So let's say you had not done anything and you weren't able to act on it. We're about uh, three minutes left in the segment. Why? Why wouldn't the judge be waving his hands? Why did he pass in? Maybe this is a better question for you, Bruce. I don't know. Why Why wouldn't the judge do something, wave his hands, instead of just trying to pass it off? Or what could he have done had had you said, look, I don't got time to do this? Well, and let me yeah. just say even even before that, you know, one of – one of oh, you mean the judge who slipped the, him the business yeah. card? Okay. I thought you meant the trial judge. Like, why yeah. wouldn't the trial judge step in and do anything? Yeah, no, I'm talking about the man that, that, that passed the, yeah. the card originally okay. to Gilbert. Sorry, go ahead. No, I, I think he was just, you know, he at one point had represented Leo. So that was what his interest was like 15 years earlier. And then he be, he got appointed judge. And so he was kind of his hands were tied about what he could do. And to be honest with you, like all the legal areas had been explored and he Leo had been rejected at every stage. So he was kind of out of legal options. So I think the judge was thinking, I need some I need a writer to come in and reinvestigate this. And, you know, he wanted to stay active. He wanted to stay involved. He was really, really bothered by what had happened to Leo. And this is a very skeptical, you know, conservative judge who was not like some soft on crime, you know, liberal from New York City. Like, I want to fix every bad decision in the South. You know, he was not that guy. And, uh, you know, he was really skeptical about it. Um, and so that was really impressive to me, too. Like, just recognize he was saying something is wrong here and I can't stand quiet about this. When when the judge came to you uh, to make you aware of Leo's situation, how long had he been in prison at that point? Uh, well, he would have been over 30 years. I think we're looking like 31 years. He's been in prison about 35 now. Yeah. So, yeah, he's been locked up for 31 years at this point. And the judge was just telling me, like, look, I know they framed this guy. I know exactly how they did it. I'll guide you through this. And and that's what he did, like, throughout the whole process. Yeah, and, and uh, we'll get into this in our next segment. But, you know, one of the things that's amazing is that in the course of you digging in here and getting to the bottom of what happened and all the mistakes that were made, all the evidence that was missed that was not um properly handled all the lies that were told throughout here um gilbert also uncovered essentially a confession to a completely separate murder um that was never resolved and that was an unsolved crime uh and that an innocent man had been tried twice if i'm not mistaken for for that um right. and you know in the course of this 
just trying to clear that name, Gilbert's you know inadvertently stumbled on the the confession to a totally separate murder. It's a pretty impressive story, and we're going to continue next on Your Day in Court with Gilbert King, podcast about Leo Schofield, who was wrongly convicted of murder down in Florida, the subject of the Bone Valley podcast. When we continue on Your Day in Court with Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice here on Extra 106.3. This is Your Day in Court with Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice on Extra 106.3. Welcome back to Your Day in Court with Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice on Extra 106.3. My name is Tug Cowart. We have a special edition of Your Day in Court. We're speaking with Gilbert King. He is the man who's done extraordinary work bringing light to a horrible injustice down in Lakeland, Florida. A man named Leo Schofield who was accused and convicted of murdering his young wife when there was another man who literally said, I did it, and nothing has been done to this point. The podcast is called Bone Valley. We encourage you to go check it out. It is a fascinating, fascinating listen. Bruce, you brought it up, and I appreciate you doing it because I've enjoyed it. Yeah, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, it was uh, award-winning number one uh, true crime podcast of the year, so it's, it is absolutely worth the listen. I'm interested in this because certainly to be as successful as you are in your career, you can't approach every story, every lead that comes your way way, just immediately assuming that you're hearing the full story. You've got to approach it with a, a certain amount of skepticism. And as you stepped into this one, you know, you describe, well, let me just at least indulge this judge and, and go ahead and read the trial transcript. But at some point, it became pretty obvious to me list, as a listener that you, you were not dispassionate about your investigation into this. At some point, you became very clearly convinced that this man is in prison for a crime he did not commit. What was it that was the tipping point for you when you went from being skeptical and looking into every angle of what might have happened to the point that you were convinced, I'm on the right track here. Leo does not belong in jail. And this is a true injustice. That's, that's a good question. You know, and I, I am skeptical, honestly, even when a judge hands me something like, I'm like, all right, there's crazy judges out there too. You know, I don't trust anybody. I really don't. And so I went through the transcript with him. He answered all my questions and I said, this is really interesting, but I need to know more. And I started filing records requests. And I started looking at those. Um, I had a researcher working with me named Kelsey Decker, who was really helpful because she was able to stay ahead of me because I had a couple things going on and she kept reading it and she kept looking at the documents and I could tell from her, she was like, oh, this guy's innocent. I could tell, you know, we'd done a lot of research, read all the transcripts. We went down and we wanted to meet Leo. And that was one thing we set up. We set up a visitation with him in prison. I honestly think that was probably the moment where I realized the way he was talking about his case and the way he would just sort of say, look, Gilbert, my story has never changed over these last 30-something years. And I could just sort of see the, how transparent he was and how much of an open book he was. And I remember having this thought, if this guy like misleads me or lies to me, it's kind of over. I'm not going to go forward with this because I don't want to put years of my life into a story like this, realizing I'm being like tricked or played or something like that. That was always in the back of my mind. And honestly, I can tell you through the entire process, I've never had one moment where I felt like he's misled me at all. He's just 
just an open book. He admits to some horrible stuff that he was involved in in his relationship with his young wife, but you know, he didn't kill her. And I could tell just by talking to him. And I know you could say, well, you know, this is people have been fooled by this before, but there is something about talking to an innocent person sometimes when you know they're innocent, because I've met many exonerees and they all seemed very similar to the way Leo was talking to me. And so at that point, I, I really did trust him. Even just as a practicing attorney, periodically, letters will come to my office from prisons, from prisoners in jail. They might be one page handwritten letter. It might be 15 pages handwritten letter. And it might be that they just go through the directory of the Georgia bar and send it to everybody, you know, in alphabetical order. It's hard to know. You know, I mean, you, you listen to some folks who uh, become jaded uh, in my profession after a while. And it's like, yeah, everybody who's in jail is locked up. will tell you that they're innocent. It's impressive that you saw beyond that sort of skepticism to get to the heart of the story and recognize this here. And if it was Kelsey who helped persuade you, then uh, that's yet another example of what an incredible job she was. I wanted to say Kelsey was great as an assistant from what I can tell. And in the show itself, I think such a good balance to your storytelling because she had this, I don't know. Innocence. Innocence. That's the word. I was going to say naive. It's not naive. She just had never been in that environment, like walking into the jail, being in that environment and being so caught up in the emotion of it. In episode two, when she breaks down after seeing the pictures of the autopsy and the stab wounds, that's when I was, I felt the same way about her. And then later on in the podcast, there's a a hearing and forgive me because I forget the guy's name who was there speaking on behalf of the state. And she's going to- Jerry Hill. Yeah. State attorney, Jerry Hill. State attorney, right. And and she's going to speak to him and interview him as much as she can afterwards. And she was so terrified of this man. There's just a raw honesty to the way she tells the story that I, I think was really refreshing. A lot of times I say she was like the conscience of this story. And I think, you know, we talk about that innocence. She just had a different way of looking at these, this story than I did. I'm a little bit more jaded. I've seen a lot more. That innocence really was infectious to me. And I kind of approached it through her point of view, because all of this was really filled with wonder for how does this work? She's going into a prison by herself. She's having to interview one of the most powerful people in central Florida, elected state attorney, and she's terrified. But I got to tell you, like, she knows the case. She, We called her the keeper of the facts. She knows the case better than anybody, including me. As soon as like she started asking questions with him and he started answering, I just had that feeling like I had been through this before. This guy's dead. He's not going to know what he was about to hit him. You know, and here she is, this young reporter. I think you kind of like gave her the old little lady treatment, but she like knows the facts and she called him on everything he was getting wrong. And I, it was just such a proud moment to hear that. Gilbert King, that's who we're talking to. He is the man behind Bone Valley Podcast, also a Pulitzer Prize winning author for a book called Devil in the Grove. I want to move you a little bit further along into the story and just listeners, just so you know, Leo Schofield is locked up. This is all taking place in Central Florida, which is the kind of birthplace of Florida man. So you can imagine the environment he grew up in. Leo is being represented by the local public defender's office, which appears to be a very good attorney's office with the ability to investigate, the ability to dig in and do work, but is convinced by other inmates that if you're here in this jail, you're facing murder charges, you want this one local old time lawyer to be your lawyer. So they he changes lawyers. He gets this guy in there who essentially mails it in and misses so many opportunities, both to object to the improper evidence that's being admitted, also just dig into the facts and find the facts that are 
helpful. And this guy just does a horrible job. It's it's one of the reasons we tell our listeners, you really need to be careful about who represents you when you are in any kind of trouble. But moving kind of past that and what seems to me to be truly the example of ineffective assistance of counsel, although that attempt to try to overturn this conviction was rejected. If you could speak a little bit about the investigation that was done here and then the the uh, the way that this case was prosecuted by the Florida State's Attorney's Office, because it, and not to cut too far ahead, but in, in my perspective, that's really the heart of the danger here. We've talked about it before. There's just nothing more dangerous than a corrupt prosecutor. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, and then and the way this case sort of unfolded, they initially investigate this in February of 1987. That's when the murder happens. But, you know, they don't have any evidence against Leo. There's no physical evidence. There's nothing really connecting him to this crime. So it's, it's going unsolved for well over a year. And then you have the prosecutor, John Aguero, come in and start looking at the case again. And he starts re-interviewing some of the witnesses and suddenly some of the timeline starts to come together. I don't really know how that happened, but you know, you have an initial statement from Alice Scott, who's the nosy neighbor across the street who says she sees Leo carrying out something heavy that night. And she puts a time frame on it between 2.30 and 3. This is not going to work for the prosecutor because at 2.30, we know that Leo's over with Michelle's father. And at 3 o'clock, he's talking to uh, three policemen uh, in a parking lot which is all of these things are documented. They're state's witnesses. So that timeline doesn't work. So now all of a sudden you see the timeline with that witness, Alice Scott, it goes back to one o'clock, one thirty, instead of, 2.30, 3 o'clock. And everything's kind of gets shifted around. And the next thing you know, um, Aguero is able to have uh, Leo arrested and charged with this murder. And, you know, it, it, when I looked at that investigation, it, there's there's just no way this is accurate. They, they said that the the crime scene was the trailer because Alice Scott said she saw Leo coming out of that trailer, carrying something heavy, wrapped up. Um, they they were locked into the murder happening in that trailer. Well, you know, policemen, friends, neighbors, Michelle's father, they'd all been in that trailer. Nobody saw anything unusual. There's absolutely not one drop of blood found in that trailer. Um, investigators come in and, and do a thorough job. Like they're in there for five hours, nine of them. The only thing they come out is like a two by three inch swath of carpeting um, that they take back because they see a stain on it, but they can't determine what kind of stain it is. Um, they even asked one of the crime scene technicians why you didn't, you know, tear up the rugs in the car in the, the carpet. And the answer on, on the stand was, well, we, didn't, we thought it would do too much damage um, to the to the trailer if we did that. So we didn't do that. Like, really? Oh, you, you believe a woman was stabbed 26 times in this trailer and you don't want to tear up the carpet because you're afraid of damaging a single wide in Lakeland, Florida? Didn't make any sense. So I kind of figured out very early on looking at the evidence, the police reports, the forensics. There's no way that Michelle was killed in that trailer. Um, and so that that was a big problem for me to, to look at how this state was really band-aided together. I'm, I'm amazed that they actually got a conviction. And, and as the story goes on, you start hearing uh, about some of the pressure that was put on witnesses, particularly the um, person who ultimately confessed to the murder, um, just the pressure that was put on them um, as far as how they tell their story by the state attorney's office and this one particular rogue uh, uh, state attorney, uh, John Aguero. Um, Ray Judice has joined our podcast now, finished with his court appearance. So welcome, Ray. Thank you, guys. Sorry I'm running late. Uh, you know, the good news about Zoom is it allows you not to have to travel to court. The bad news is that you're just sort of sitting at your desk while 
who knows what's going yeah. on. So, yeah. hey, uh, a pleasure to be involved in this, uh, uh, Gilbert, if you don't mind me calling you Gilbert. Yeah, sure, uh, right. Thanks. And, I've, and I've, I've been listening for a few moments. So so let me ask you this from a criminal defense lawyer, you know, uh, perspective. Uh, you know, Bruce does personal injury cases and he deals with medical personnel and professionals all the time. And in medicine, there's what's called the golden hour. And while it's not really 60 minutes, it kind of refers to that first treatment, you know, whether it's by the EMTs or in the ER, that the eventual surgeons have to deal with the problem is how good was that golden hour treatment? Uh, how good was the golden hour legal advice that Leo got in this matter? Because once, once at some point in time, he's got to figure out that this is coming, you know, he's being looked at and what does he do? And I'm not trying to, uh, you know, insult anybody's legal skills, but what I've seen is that upfront work is what, what can, can prevent wrongful convictions. You know, you're absolutely right in this case. And one of the things that was sort of interesting to me is that, you know, the public defender's office in this particular county was fantastic. They had really experienced trial attorneys. They'd gotten lots of people off from murder charges because they were really just good. And, and so I'm talking about some of them were guilty. I know that they were guilty. They still got them acquitted because they're just really talented uh, public defenders in this office. And Leo starts out his case with these guys representing them. And you could see right immediately they go into a bail hearing and the judge even admits like this, the case from the state is not that strong. And he sets a very low bail. I think it was the lowest bail for a first degree murder charge. Um, so already with the public defenders really looking at this case and challenging it early on, Leo was in really good shape. Then he goes back to jail and, and these experienced guys are like, you can't trust your life to a public pretender. They are going to ruin it or overworked or overscheduled. You can't do it. There's a hot shot lawyer in town named Jack Edmund. He's got billboards. He's famous. You need him running your case. Well, you know, the problem with that is um, Leo had broken his neck that summer. He had a, a $50,000 settlement coming to him through, for, through insurance. And so Jack Edmund came in and said, I will represent you. That's exactly my fee. You have that signed over to me and I'll represent you. And so now he thinks he's got the hot shot, best criminal justice, you know, best criminal defense attorney in town. Um, but it was not the case. He was, um, you know, he was very flashy, but he didn't do any pre-trial preparation, didn't do any depositions with any witnesses. Uh, he, he just didn't prepare. He was I kind of a shoot from your hip kind of guy. I, I was shocked. Cost, I was know. shocked. Excuse me to interrupt, Gilbert. I was shocked to hear yeah. that, you know, um, Jack, uh, the, the hotshot lawyer in town, didn't meet Leo until the evening before trial. You know, he he shows yeah. up at, at the jail cell, you know, that evening before to talk about what's going to happen in court the next day, which is the trial. And, I and mean, you know, he, he, he's a guy who is just trying to get by on his charm, uh, you know, brings candy to court every day for everybody, you know, all the clerks, the judge, the court reporter, and, and just, you know, is going to win the case with his charm in closing and and was so underprepared for this uh, prosecution that was ready that that you know manipulated the heck out of the evidence just just misrepresented in terms of their closing you know what the alleged facts were it, it was a gross example of uh, a lawyer who maybe at one time had the, the abilities but in in this particular trial just did a horrible job and then by the time you know it got to the the point of let, let's see what we can do here to uncover some of this you know he's long gone and mm -hmm. and leo remains in jail so uh yeah j just absolutely awful and so um i did i do want to ask you uh on 
changing subjects slightly. Uh, sure. There was a case uh, here in Georgia recently where uh, two men were freed after uh, being in prison for 25 years, wrongfully convicted of murder. Um, and it's a comparable case uh, in a sense that the uh, evidence that exonerated them was uncovered by the efforts of a journalist uh, exposing it through a podcast. Um, and I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the story. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts on, you know, how is it that, you know, here you have the evidence that comes up years later, you know, being made public and justice is done largely through the efforts of the Georgia Innocence Project. Um, here in Leo's case, you have evidence that comes forward. You have the Florida Innocence Project assisting both, you know, the private attorneys here, and yet justice is not done in Leo's case. Do you have any sense about, you know, what is different from one instance to the other? Yeah, I mean, I could say that, you know, sometimes I think, you know, I, and I just started listening to proof, and I'm familiar with the story through the New York Times article. Uh, and none of these wrongful convictions are really surprising to me. They happen all the time. Um, and I think, you know, that's that's the thing that's shocking to a lot of people. You know, we don't like to think about the numbers, but, you know, I, I talk about um, in Florida just alone, like since the Supreme Court um, went back to the death penalty in 1976, um, Florida has executed 99 people. Um, in that same time period, there have been 30 exonerations from death row in Florida. So for every three people that Florida executed, one person has been found innocent and released from death row. That That's a staggering amount of mistakes. And, and, and so, you know, and those are just death penalty cases where they're looked at a little bit more, uh, you know, with a little more uh, seriousness because of, because, you know, of the finality of it all. Um, but, you know, like in Georgia, I, I just think it's like, why is it that like, podcasters or journalists are putting in the time and the effort to to dig into these cases the way the prosecution is not. Um, you know, it's pretty clear in these cases that, you know, obviously courts are exonerating. You have to move mountains to get exonerations. So it's it's pretty clear beyond a reasonable doubt uh, of of their innocence. And, and and that's what's, I think, just shocking to a lot of people that, you know, this is still happening today. Um, but it's, it really shouldn't be very shocking to anybody. You know, back then, I think, you know, especially a lot of these prosecutors felt like they were operating in the dark. Sometimes they had local media, which kind of parroted their own uh, investigation. So you'd only get the facts out there that were favorable to the prosecution. And that's exactly what happened in Leo's case. Um, you know, it just, they they had sort of tunnel vision and they just went down this road that it has to be Leo Schofield and no other evidence will be important to us. Yeah, and even to that point, uh, in in Gilbert's uh, telling of this tale, as as they uncover, you know, Jeremy essentially uh, com- uh, admitting to a separate murder of a cab driver that was an unsolved murder because they um, tried. Uh, another man, and he was, I think, mistried and then acquitted in a second trial. So they tried the same guy twice. And and here, um, you know, here's Gilbert and Kelsey coming forward like, hey, we've got the evidence you need to solve this other unsolved murder. You know, the, the victim's family would probably appreciate it. Certainly the guy you wrongfully accused would appreciate it. And there's just no interest whatsoever to get to the truth. The response there was, we know who the murderer was. The jury just got it wrong. And and, and so, you know, yeah. here it, it, it's it's unbelievably frustrating. You know, Ray and I will say many times that um, 
we, we do think that we have such a great justice system and the best justice system in the world, but that doesn't mean that mistakes aren't made. And while, uh, you know, as young uh, lawyers and certainly law students, you know, we were trained with this notion that, um, you know, the presumption of innocence is a real thing. And we have a legal system that would rather have 10 guilty people go free than one innocent person convicted. Um, when you quote stats like what you said from Florida's death row cases, um, it, it's just shocking and horrifying that there's so many mistakes and so much injustice in this great justice system if it truly is a great justice system. Bruce, let me jump in there, though, that and, and not to uh, defend anybody that was improperly convicted. But one of the major reasons that there are these exonerations is the uh, absolute sea change in DNA testing, which many of these convictions, when you go back to them, whether it's the blood sample, the semen sample, the whatever the, the physical sample that the DNA, the hair sample, DNA was in its infancy. Now, to, you know, look, we have Daubert now, uh, the Supreme Court, which has raised the bar for expert testimony and is being applied in criminal cases, even here in the state of Georgia, for many different types of cases. So I would say that in the light of much better science, uh, a lot of these exonerations are based upon it. And thankfully, I mean, thankfully, you know, we, we had the famous Wayne Williams case here in Atlanta back in 1980, 81. I was living here at the time. And, you know, at least 33 young African-American boys are just wiped off, you know, eliminated, disappear almost always. And, and they believe many more. And, you know, it all goes back to a carpet sample found in Wayne Williams family's rec room. And you know what, I, there's been a lot of, you know, there's a lot of people, including myself, if you ever saw Wayne Williams, the fact that he could by himself murder and strangle 33 street kids. I point that out because I grew up in Yonkers, New York, which and I was a little bit of a street kid. I wasn't tough, but I was quick, I was wiry, and I had street sense. And no little librarian-looking wimp like Wayne Williams is going to strangle me without him getting a whooping, you know? So I've never bought into that. And one day, I hope that the DNA sample from the dog and the carpet in the Wayne Williams case, and Wayne Williams may, in fact, be completely responsible. I've always argued that he wasn't alone. This yeah. is – go ahead Go ahead, finish, Gilbert. Oh, no, I was, I was going to agree. I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I would say in this case – these weren't accidents that the prosecution like stumbled into and just got it wrong. These were really smart prosecutors. And when you look at the way they presented this case all the way through the appellate system, I see a lot of misrepresentation of their evidence. And I always write it off as like, oh, that's a harmless error. Why isn't one of those harmless errors that they commit ever favor Leo? They're always errors that benefit the state in some way. Uh, and, and there's just very subtle misrepresentations of evidence that I see. And that was one of the most disturbing parts of this case, how this bad factual evidence that gets summed up in the state's closing argument makes it into briefs that go before appellate courts and then ultimately makes it into the deciding judge's opinion. These 
you know, misrepresented facts become facts by the time they get to the appellate court decision. It almost looks like, you know, the 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 the, the judges are look are not reading the trial transcripts for sure. They're not reading the trial transcripts, but they're just going by what the state's brief says as fact. And and that's one of the most like disturbing things to see this game of telephone just be repeated over and over. And it's the misrepresentation of evidence. I don't think it was a mistake. I believe it was intentional. You're listening to Your Day in Court on Extra 106.3 with Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice, And our special guest today is Gilbert King of the Bone Valley Podcast. He is a Pulitzer Prize winning author. We're going to continue with him in the next segment. Will Leo Schofield's conviction ever be overturned? Will justice be done? We'll continue on Your Day in Court on Extra 106.3. This is Your Day in Court with Bruce Hagan and Ray Giudice on Extra 106.3. Welcome back to a special edition of Your Day in Court on Extra 106.3 with Bruce Hagan, Ray Giudice, and our guest today, Gilbert King of the Bone Valley Podcast. He is a Pulitzer Prize winning author of a book called Devil in the Grove. This is the big question. Is there hope for people like Leo Schofield that his wrongful conviction gets overturned? I continue to have hope, even though it looks like his legal options might have really dwindled down. And, you know, like the new EDPA laws that have been put into place just make overturning a wrongful conviction even more difficult because you just can't take them beyond the state anymore. It's just very rare that you can find an issue to appeal at a federal level. Really, his hopes are really lying in state. And here's one of the reasons I'm kind of hopeful. You know, when Devil in the Grove came out, it came out in 2012. People started reading it, the legislature, in their own book clubs. And there started to grow some like momentum for wanting to correct this gross injustice from the past. I could see like some of the momentum building. Like at one point, somebody tapped me on the shoulder when I was doing a book talk and said, hey, watch the news tonight. And I did. And it turned out Marco Rubio, the senator, said, you know, now is the time to exonerate the Groveland Four. It got to be a political thing. And, and then Governor DeSantis, or Ron DeSantis, who was running for governor, said, this is going to be one of the first things I deal with when I take office, which I thought was really interesting. And, you know, true to his word, like I think he was in office for two days, he called a clemency hearing and ended up pardoning the Groveland Four. And so I kind of hold out hope that as bad as Florida is, and I really, I give Florida a black eye constantly in the work that I do, but I also praise them for these moments of great government, where unlike a lot of other states, they are willing to step in and correct these injustices. And I believe that there's just going to be this grassroots movement. People are listening to Bone Valley. More and more people keep listening to it. I get contacted from people who are powerful in the state of Florida saying, sit tight. We're working on this. We're trying to get attention to this. Um, and I'm hopeful that something's going to happen and somehow this will come to the right people, perhaps Governor DeSantis, and they'll step in and, and realize there's no political downside to correcting a gross injustice from the past. Gilbert, any word from the public relations wing of the state of Florida Bar Association? Florida's got a lot of lawyers, got a lot of powerful lawyers, one of which has uh, auto accident billboards all over the state of Georgia. Is that Morgan and Morgan? <laughs> yeah, he's a very connected guy. 800 yeah. lawyers. Not saying it's his responsibility, but I'm just using him as a as an example of how about the Bar Association saying, hey, governor, we've got Democrats, Republicans, and Independents, members of the bar, and we see an injustice here. Or the state group of superior court judges. We have it here, the trial judges. Sometimes the best way to correct a problem is inside the family. 
I'm Italian, so you know that's kind of how we hmm. we view things. Seemed to me that there's some brave Florida State Bar President who ought to call the governor and say, how about parole or clemency on this? Yeah, and, and I totally agree with you. And I, I'm a big fan of like settling this in the family and getting it done right without having to make it this big political fight. You know, in Florida, last time when I was dealing with the Groveland Four, there's a very powerful group called Leadership Florida. And they're like sort of the best and brightest from the universities and they get together and they're in the business, they're in politics, they're in all sorts of different fields. And they take on these causes every year to better Florida. Florida. And this particular year, they chose the case of the Groveland Four. And they used their power and their persuasiveness within you know, law, business, to sort of reach out and get this done. And it was very effective. And I think everybody came away from that feeling like we did something right. And there was no political blowback on that at all. I'm really hopeful that the same thing is going to happen now. It's one of these things was the podcast has really only just come out, the whole set has only come out like a few weeks. So people are starting to listen. But I've gotten some calls from some very powerful people influential in the state of Florida that are saying we're on this we're doing the right thing here that's and great. that's great it may take hear. some time I think the best thing that we can do is encourage everybody who's listening to this podcast to tell your friends and spread the word because number one it's an incredible story it's an incredible listen and and secondly just the more that word gets out here I think about this the greater the chance that something positive can can come out of it for Leo Schofield and, and Bruce since our show is called your day in court Gilbert you know, we always try to take our topic and relate it to our listeners. So listeners, this is why it's important for you to know who your district attorneys are, which in Georgia are elected positions. It's important for you to know who your judges are, which in Georgia, most of the, the higher level judges are elected. The ones that are appointed are appointed by the judges that are elected. And those judicial races are important to have ethical, quality, lawyers and judges and prosecutors and public defenders. And Gilbert, one last thing, you know, you were right. The folks in the public defender's office among, all around, across the country do, they do the Lord's work for our criminal justice system. And it's the folks that are in that courthouse every single day, in that courtroom every single day, especially the senior folks. They know what, what who the prosecutors are, what they're gonna do, their game plan, how the judge is gonna rule. Uh, we criminal defense lawyers, you know, we work five or six different jurisdictions. And of course, it's hard for us to know which way the wind is blowing in every single courtroom. So just because you hired a guy on a billboard, and Bruce and I don't have billboards, that doesn't mean you're going to buy <laughs> justice. I couldn't have put it better. That was really, really dead on. It's like he's done <laughs> this before. What I yeah, do. it's almost like yeah, he knows what, what he's I, doing, right? That's what I do. That's exactly I'm a great right. summarizer of everybody else's good thoughts. There you go. I yeah. like it. Look, it's, it's so great. It is. It's <laughs> terrific. Well, as we come to a conclusion here, you know, it's just a fascinating story. And like Bruce has said, and I'll echo, go check out Bone Valley, the podcast, the story of Leo Schofield by Gilbert King, Pulitzer Prize winning author and a guy that we have just enjoyed talking to today. Thank Thank you so much, uh, Gilbert, for taking the time for us. And if there's anything that we can ever do to help you promote the show, the podcast, we're willing to do it here on your day in court. So thank you. hundred percent, Gilbert. Oh, uh, just to echo those thoughts, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Uh, it, it's a pleasure to hear you speak. If you ever decide that you're going to leave the uh, Tony confines of Brooklyn and make your way down to Atlanta, uh, uh, let us know because we'd love to take you out and hear more about the story in person. Uh, I really appreciate it. I really love talking with you guys. It's a really kind of a nice casual conversation about law and, and, and it, it's really refreshing. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, we'll go up to we'll go up to Peter Luger's and have a have a twenty pound steak. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> hey, you gotta bring cash. You can't bring your, your uh, car right. card. 
<laughs> only cash at Peter Luger's. It's go. true. It's still like that. <laughs> still like that, isn't it? Something, man. Yeah. You know, there's some great traditions, and that's one of them. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Keens and Luger's and some great stuff. Yeah. You know, Keens is still places. around too. Yeah. 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 What's the place up on the east side where all, with the mafia place? It's like. Oh, you're, I know. You're talking about like Sparks. That Sparks. was where. Uh, that's my yeah. house. <laughs> I was working up there at the time, and there was a nice big rub out in the early 80s. I'm like, yeah. Paul yeah. Castellano, I believe. Yeah. bought it at sparks restaurant i think that place is still around too it is, as i it recall is, people, uh, people were stepping over his body to go inside to get their their dinner because they didn't want to miss their reservation it's <laughs> new york baby it's hard to get a reservation at sparks trust me man oh goodness you gotta grease you gotta grease everybody at the hotel. yeah I, I know his table's open right he can't make it <laughs> uh gilbert a lot of fun if you're ever in atlanta we'll take you to bones which is one of our great steakhouses or the palm and uh, oh, Bruce man. and I are both New Yorkers, and if we get up there, I'd like to drop in on you. I would love that. You guys, stay Fine. in touch. And if there's any big updates, I'll definitely let you guys know. And I think no, we'll we get may you have on if there's any big updates. We'll get you I think on. We may have some coming up. Yeah, so. it's our time. You know, we bought. We, as Ronald Reagan said, we paid for this microphone. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Gilbert, it. quickly, how can folks yeah. reach out to you and find more? Can they find you on social media, places like that? Yeah, I um, I'm out there on Twitter, Gilbert King. Uh, at Gilbert King, I think. Well, I'm not really it's, that big it's, on social It's actually media. Gilbert underscore King. Underscore King. There you go. Yeah, I think there's like a thousand Gilbert Kings. Uh, but you can also go to my website, GilbertKing.com, um, and I post uh, updates about Bone Valley there and have all my social media links. Um, and then go to LavaForGood.com and Bone Valley, and it's there. And, and the podcast is available anywhere you want, Apple, Spotify. It's just everywhere. It's free. So take a listen. There you go. Thank you so much for your time. We hope you have a great day. We appreciate you. Thanks, guys. Really right, appreciate man. your show. Yes, sir. God really bless really you. Thank you. Take care, guys. All right, see ya. In today's fast-paced world, your business deserves banking solutions that are as dynamic and cost-effective as you are. Solutions like free business checking from LGE Community Credit Union, free online and mobile banking, no minimum balance required, plus no maintenance fees and dividends on your balance. At LGE, we're a smarter way to bank. See what's possible for your business at lgeccu.org. No monthly maintenance fees. Other service fees such as NSF, overdraft, wire, and stop payment fees still apply. Not all businesses will qualify. Membership eligibility and base savings account that keeps a $5 minimum balance required. Hey, Atlanta, Hudson Mason here. Is a new roof still on your to-do list, but you've been delayed due to rising home service costs? Well, here's a fantastic solution from Accent Roofing Service. Zero down, zero payments, and zero interest for a full year. That's right. You can get your new roof now and start paying next year. Act quickly because Accent's incredible offer of zero, zero, zero with a 12-month deferred payment option for a lifetime roof system isn't going to last long. Contact the craftsman at Accent Roofing Service today, accentroofingservice.com. 